But it's true. As the song says, He makes all things new. And we know that He truly does. He truly does. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the story of Saul, Paul, same person, different, a little bit different after his encounter with the Lord, but all in all, same person. And so if you hear me say Saul or Paul, just know I'm talking about Paul or Saul, okay? <laughs> y'all got it? Y'all got it? Uh, because I'm so used to hearing Paul Uh, It's referred to as Saul here in Acts so often. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at 1 through about 5. We can't get much further than that today. There's a lot to unpack here in this one text. Uh, Speaking of making all things new, we're going to see a man who is going to be made new. And we know that that making new of, of of a man is is something that comes only from who? From Christ, right? And so we're going to see that today in our text, a portion of that. Let's begin there in 9, or verse 1, 1 through 5, chapter 9 of Acts. Beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest... And asking him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you today asking, Lord, that you would show us in your word the truth that's contained within this short passage. Lord, there's truly so much to glean from this text. And I ask and I pray that we would be able to focus, that we would be able to intently listen to this passage of Scripture. Lord, I love you and I thank you for this great story that's historical, but true and applicable. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we already started talking about Saul some. Saul comes out in uh, the book of Acts in chapter 8. There at the end of chapter, well, really at the end of chapter 7, you see where he uh, was was, um, holding the clothes of those that were stoning Stephen. And then in the beginning of Acts in chapter 8, flip back a page with me. It might be on the same page where you're at, but mine is not. So flip back one page and beginning in Acts chapter 8, look at verse 1. Because as the church moves, the persecution is going to move with it. As the church moves, the persecution is going to move with it. And this is what I want us to understand. As we see a spiritual growth in people, as we see a spiritual growth in those that we love, understand that persecution is going to grow with that spiritual growth. 
We have to understand that. That is something that we cannot get around. It is promised to us if Christ was uh, persecuted, then we are as well. Listen to what it says in 8 and 1. This goes right along with the Great Commission. Listen to what it says. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This day, as we begin in our text, chapter 9, we see that as the gospel spreads, persecution of the saints spreads with it. The Great Commission was to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way out to the end of the earth. And here in this text, we see persecution doing the exact same thing. What does it say? And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And we know here in chapter 9, Saul is going to leave Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And he's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. He's going to move and he's going to keep going until something stops him. Here we know that he's going into Gentile territory. Gentile territory. Even though he was going after Jewish people that were believing in Christ, he was going into Gentile territory. He was moving. And persecution truly is the catalyst is the catalyst that is, that is driving the saints of God out. Persecution is. And you see it at its finest right here. But this is not something that is coming upon them unaware. I want us to understand something. This was something that was prophesied about from the very book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. In chapter 50 and verse 20, you don't have to turn there. You don't, you don't have to turn there. But Genesis 49, I'm sorry, 49 and 27, it says, Benjamin is a ravening wolf. We went over this in chapter 8 when I looked at uh, Acts chapter 8. Benjamin is a ravening wolf. In the morning devouring its prey and in the evening dividing the spoil. So we, we can't catch the church off guard here. We can't catch the Lord off guard. It is prophesied that there would be one that would be ravenous. There would be one that would be raging violence, foaming out violence out of his mouth. And we know that to be King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And we also know that to be Saul of Tarsus from the tribe of Benjamin. So both of them fit this, both of them fit this scenario perfectly. But the bad that's taking place is, guys, we, we can't look at bad as something that's always bad. Listen to what it says in Genesis 50 and 20, speaking about Joseph. Listen to what it says. And this we can apply to ourselves. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are Today. So, this persecution, even though on the outside it looks rough for us, the Lord uses it, doesn't He? He uses it for His good. King Saul in the Old Testament persecuted uh, Jesse, the, and his son was, uh, I'm sorry, 
King Saul in the Old Testament persecuted um, King David, who was the son of Jesse, who was also called the son of man. And Jesus Christ here in this text is being persecuted and he's being persecuted by Saul of Tarsus, who is also called the son of man. Let's begin there in verse 1 and let's look at it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. The Saul of Tarsus had the fire of hell in his eyes. He wanted to destroy the church. And you say, well, that's not really anybody I know. Well, here's the thing. Even though a person may not be outwardly going against the church, the scripture teaches that you're either for him or what? Against him. So yes, in fact, you are. If we are not for the Lord, then we know that we are against the Lord. And here, Saul of Tarsus was absolutely against the Lord, but he was going about it, man, as hard as he could go. He was breathing in anger and rage and breathing out violence and murder. It was as if this man received energy from doing this, doing this work, this violence and this anger and rage. It was his oxygen. He couldn't live without it. This is who he was. It fueled him to go and to persecute the church. This Saul of Tarsus went to go stomp out the fire of Christianity and every time he stomped, he spread it. Every time he put his foot down and began to quench what was taking place, something else popped up. He was spreading it. What he thought was good, he kept spreading. So he would put one down here and another one pop up. Saul wanted to take down the entire New Testament church. At this moment in time, we know that it had been about a year. And there were several thousand in Jerusalem. And that number was spreading quickly. Saul wanted to single-handedly destroy that. He was zealous and eager to do violence to the church. So he set his heart to it. This is a terrible, terrible thing. Verses 1 and 2 says that he went to the high priest to get letters so that he would have authorized power. So that he would have authorized power to go into the synagogues in Damascus and wherever he went. So that he would have power that had been granted to him by the high priest. To go gather these people and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, to be murdered, to be slaughtered. This was, this was Saul of Tarsus. The Lord, we know, according to the Scripture, is going to be using him as an instrument of grace to preach the gospel. But up until this moment, he was not. There was no grace in him. This was a wicked, wicked man. This man needed Christ. This man was terrible. Guys, we cannot begin, we cannot begin to understand how violent he was. He was violent. The murderer leaves. He was a murderer. This murderer leaves and he's on his way to Damascus. Who is the target? Where's he going? Somebody answer me. Who's the target? Where's he going? 
He's targeting men and women. He's going to the church. He's going to where they meet that belong to what? The way. He's targeting people that belong to the way. And I just got to stop and say this. This is probably one of the coolest names I think the church has. It's the way. Does anybody else think that? I really think that. I mean, that is so cool to me that they were actually labeled. They were labeled. Today, we have a lot of labels, don't we? Well, then people down there is Calvinists. Then people over there is no hellers. Soul sleepers. Armenians. You get all these crazy names, right? Snake handlers. I had to throw that one in there. It's from Kentucky. You know. All these different names. But here in the early church, what was their name? Who, how were they identified? As They were identified as the way. They belonged to the movement, the way. Now, this was a derogatory term, of course, from Paul. He, you know, he, he learned to identify them as that. But for the child of God, what a beautiful, beautiful name to be given. It is clear and it is very evident why they received this title. Why did they receive this title? The way? Thank you, Judy. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what she says. That's what she says. John 14 tells us that, doesn't it? I am the way. And so these children of God were known as the way. But I want us to see with this name that's given, it is a title given and it is singular. It's singular. This group of people, even though they were quite large, they're all going in one direction. Do we understand that? One direction. One way. Only one. Not two ways. Not multiple ways. This way is the way of Christ and nothing or nobody else. This was the way. The way of the cross. Jesus even tells us, deny yourself. What's he saying? Deny your way and take up my way. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Deny who you are. Deny the flesh. Deny the evil. Turn against it. With the way you really see true repentance. Because to repent means what? To turn, right? And so when we're looking at a certain direction, if David takes off in Las Vegas and he wants to fly to Louisiana, do you think that the most direct route would be fly to Minnesota first, David? No. It's not, is it? To go to Minnesota, then go to New York, and then come down to Louisiana? It's not. You would be going out of the way. You would be going, it it just wouldn't make any sense at all. Here, repentance is turning. Repentance is, is moving and going opposite 
of the way everybody else is going, following the one true path to get to that destination. We know the destination to be heaven, the destination to be glory. And here, these people are known as the way. There is but one way to glory and one way to heaven. There's but one way to the Father, and that is through the Son, Jesus. And this is why these people were called the way. Let me ask you a question. If people outside was to look at you, could they call you the way? Would they be able to say, well, he's part of the way? Would they be able to identify, would they see that it is evident in your life that you're part of the way? Can anybody? Anybody ever told you that? Anybody at all? Please, somebody show me your hands. Anybody ever told you you're part of the way? Anybody ever told you that you're part of Christ? That they can see it in you? I have. I've had people tell me that. And it's good to hear. These people were part of the way. Remember, it was evident. It was evident that they were different. They were not going their way anymore. They were going the most direct path. And that was via Christ. Proverbs 14 and 12. I love this text. Because it really explains who we are uh, outside of Christ the best. There is a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Saul of Tarsus thought he was doing right. If you look down in the next verse, in verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way. Y'all see that? As compared to those people of the way in verse 2. As he went on his way. Saul was on his way. He was doing things his way. He was doing things the way that he wanted to do them. And understand this, if you continue down that path, it is a way of death. It's a way of death. This was Saul's way, his own way. He wanted to do it all by himself. Which is devastating to the natural man. Listen to what the text says in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So here Saul is and he's going on his way. He's moving his direction. He's moving the way that he wants to do, doing things the way he wants to do them. He thought that he was going and doing right. But then something happens. And it truly is beautiful. Something happens. The Lord reveals Himself to him. And the laws that he had been so vehemently trying to keep, for the first time in his life, the law is made and brought home to his heart. The law shows him who he truly is. Romans chapter 7 and verse 9 tells us, I was once alive apart from the law. This is actually the Apostle Paul speaking. And that's a whole wonderful passage of Scripture if you want to read it. Chapter 7, it says, I was was once alive apart from the law. 
But when the commandment came or when the law came, sin came alive and I died. And you say, that's a lot to understand and that's a lot to try to take in, Brother Matthew. Listen to me. When the commandment came, when the law came to Saul's heart, the sin in his life came alive. And when it did, he died. It destroyed him. It destroyed who he was. For the first time in his life, he could see what sin truly was. He'd been preaching it and trying to obtain it this whole, his whole life, the law of God. But once the law showed him who he was, it slayed him. The law came to life and it brought sin to life in his heart and it slayed him. Let me put it like this. This is from Matthew Henry. Pay attention. I know this may be hard to grasp, but I want you to, want you to hear me. Listen to me. You don't know how crooked something is until you put something straight next to it, right? Okay. You don't know how dirty you are until you look into a mirror and see the spots and the filth, right? So there is no coming to the knowledge of sin which is necessary to repentance and consequently to peace and pardon, but by comparing our hearts and lives with the law. Matthew Henry. What happened in Acts chapter 9 is that Saul's heart came to life. And when it came to life, he felt sin for the very first time and it destroyed him. It put him on his backside. It knocked him down to the earth. It scared him to death. He was trembling. He was trembling. Saul was all about the law. He had a head knowledge, but he never had a heart knowledge of it. I can remember the first time that I knew what sin was. Can you? When it wasn't just a, no, don't do that, and you understand that command, but no, it was... Don't do that or you will have a consequence and it's going to be a butt whooping and you're disobeying daddy or mama. When it came to your heart and you understood for the first time, wait a second, my sin is keeping me, it's helping me miss the mark. It is real and it is true. This sin is wrong. Paul here for the first time understands that he is wrong. Sin revived or it came to life in his own life and he died. This is a beautiful thing to see in people. But it's also hard to see. To watch them struggle and to watch them try to find the truth. Sin was revealed to Paul. It came alive to him. He knew what it was for the very first time. He had a heart knowledge of it for the very first time. It revived in his heart and it broke him. Broke him. Sin revived and I died. Pay attention to me. He says, Saul, Saul. Calls him by name, doesn't he? 
On the road to Damascus, sin was shown to Saul and applied to his heart. And when it did, it slew him. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around about him. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Ladies and gentlemen, this was at midday. This was during the middle of the day. Noon. This light that was shining was shining brighter than the natural light. And if, if you want to know that where that reference is, it's in, it's in Acts uh, 22 and 6 and 26, 12 through 14. Where it talks about it being noon when this happened to him. Shining brighter than the midday sun. It wasn't the natural sun that was shining, but it was the very presence and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Making himself manifest to this man. The Son of God revealing himself in radiance to Saul. Just like on the mountain of transfiguration. Christ was dazzling bright. He was white. Beautiful. And Saul couldn't handle it. It broke him. Why? Because when you're compared to perfection, you will always see your faults. And Saul was seeing his faults. When you are compared to perfection, you will see your faults. We didn't know how dirty our kitchen was until we got LED lights in it. In our white kitchen. You understand what I'm telling you? And when the true lights shone bright, then we could see how dirty our kitchen was. Here in our text, this is what is happening to this man. He is seeing for the first time who he really is. But Christ coming down, it shows his majesty. It shows his purity and it's a glimpse of what we will get to see one day when we go to heaven. Just as Peter, James, and John saw it on the top of the mountain, the transfiguration. Paul here is seeing something that's so beautiful that he can't even look upon and he's blinded. Drops him. Right there in his tracks. When we receive our glorified bodies, we will be able to look on our Savior, right? In our natural bodies, that's something that we can't, we can't fathom. And it's also something that we can't do. But when we receive our glorified bodies, we'll be able to stand before Him. And be able to see this... This brilliance of his. Verse 4 says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He calls him by name. Two Two things here I want you to see about this text. First, Christ calls him by name. This was not a general calling out to everybody that was around him. I'm speaking to everybody in the room this morning. If I wanted to speak to Robert, I would say, Robert, I'm speaking to you. Robert, Robert, to get your attention. 
And this is what the Lord is doing. I can remember the, the personal call that he gave to me when I was under conviction. When my heart was made alive to sin. Matthew, Matthew. And if you go back and remember when the Lord worked in your heart, when he brought you to life, and you could feel that sin for the first time, and you knew that he was calling you. Anybody remember that moment? That's right. He's calling you by name. This is what he done to me. He called me by name. He got a hold of me. When that conviction was laid heavy upon the back of upon my back, when it was laid heavy, all I knew and all I could understand was he's calling me. Forget about everybody else. I'm the one that he's pinpointing right now. Two things here that I want you to see. He calls him by name. This was not a general call going out to all that were there. Remember, he had people with him. He had people that were helping him. But this did not go to them. Christ did not call them by name. He called Saul by name. It was a personal call. But I want you to see this also. It was an arresting call. It stopped him in his tracks. He was not the same from this moment on. He was detained by the Lord. The Lord had went out on a, on a, on a conquest. And here the Lord is obtaining the victory over the heart of Saul. His heart was detained. Everything that Saul was has now become shut down. It was a personal call. It was an arresting call. It was humiliating. It was a humble call, wasn't it? What did it do to him? It brought him down low. And this is ever the case with those people that aim to be children of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs of the kingdom of heaven. They must be brought low first. Remember, they must be shown that they are crooked, that they are dirty. And here in this text, this is exactly what's happening. The Lord is humbling Saul. He's bringing him to his knees. He's bringing him down. It's not just humbling or humiliating, but it's also debilitating. This call stopped him, didn't it? Stopped him in his tracks. I mean, knocked him down. Knocked him down. But the Lord's good at this, isn't he? He knows how to get our attention. He knows how to speak directly to our hearts. He knows how to pick up the number and dial our direct line. Extension Matthew. And he knows how to pull on my heartstrings. But this was a debilitating, debilitating call. This man was struck with fear. It shut him down. 
he could no longer go in the path that he was going. It broke him. And this call only went out to Saul. Not anybody else that was with him. Did y'all hear me? This shows you how personal our Lord is. It shows you how personal and how effectual His calling on our life is. The Lord brought sin to life in His life. He realized what it was. We're going to see that here in just a second. Look at what it says. The Lord here is revealing Himself to this man. This sinner. And He hits the ground to take cover. Now this encounter is a little bit different than ours. And the reason why it's a little bit different is because Saul actually saw him. (laughs) Does that make sense? Saul and Saul. Saul actually saw him. This is why he is an apostle. He actually saw him. That's not something that we have done unless you've been gathered up into the third heavens. I haven't. (laughs) I've not saw the Lord, okay, with my own eyes. One day I will. So that's what's different about it than ours. But the calling is the same, isn't it? The calling is the same. And that he called him personally, by name. He laid to his charge Saul's lifestyle. And he shows them that his life and his lifestyle was in complete enmity and disobedience against the Lord's way. The Lord shows him this, shows it to him clearly. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you going against me? Why are you defying me? What is your problem, Saul? Why do you kick against me? He is laying this to his charge that Saul has hatred or an enmity against the Lord, the Holy One, the Righteous One. The one that he thought he was serving all along. Here in our text, the Lord comes down and he says, Why do you have this burning hatred against me? He's saying you're guilty. Why are you persecuting me? Now we know that he wasn't persecuting Christ directly. Or was he? Well, he was going after Christians. That wasn't persecuting Christ directly. He persecuted Stephen. But no, in fact, it is persecuting Christ directly. And I find great comfort in this. That any time, any time persecution comes against us, it is coming against the Lord. And he does not like that. He said, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting Stephen. Not why are you persecuting the Christians in Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? 
And I love this because I know that when we are saved, when we become children of God, that we are hid in the hands of Christ. And for somebody to get to us means that they have to come through Him. Not only that, but we're also hid in the hands of the Father, are we not? That's what John 10, 28 through 29 tells us. Verse 5, listen to what it says and I'm done. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. Here in this text, the Lord reveals to Saul exactly who he is. There is no mistaking about it. He calls himself by name. He says, Saul, I am Jesus. The Messiah, the Christ. Can you imagine what Saul must have been thinking? The guilt, the shame, the hurt in his heart over the sin that he had been committing. He realizes here for the first time that it is Jesus that he is going against. And he's terrified and humbled by it all at the same time. And he says, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks or to kick against the goads. Showing us that Paul, or Saul, I'm sorry, was going completely against the Lord and the Lord's way. He is saying, you are persecuting me. You are going against me. You're going contrary to the truth. To kick against the pricks or to kick against the goads means to go against the master that is driving you. The master that owns you. And Saul would have known what this meant. It had been a, a, a metal spear on the end of a stick. And as they drove the oxen, whether they were plowing or whatever they were doing, as they drove the oxen to get them to go, because sometimes they would stop and to get them to go, they would, they would jab them with this metal stick, this stick with this metal on the end of it, to drive, to drive them. And ever so often that ox that oxen or whatever that beast of burden was, would kick back against it. And what would happen? It would drive even deeper into his flesh. Because he was disobeying the master. He was disobeying and going against the one that had control over him. He says, it is hard to kick against the pricks. This is what Paul was doing. Paul would have understood this. It means you're defiant and then going against the one that's driving you. And as I finish this up, listen to me, because I can't can't get into the rest of this text because there's too much. There's too much here. Listen to what it says. In verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The whole point that Christ is making to Saul is you're a sinner Saul, you're a sinner. Saul, you're wicked. Saul, you are going against my way. Saul, you need a Savior. 
Saul, you're guilty. Saul, you need to surrender to the master's will. This is what he's telling him. He brought sin to life in his life. Saul understood it for the first time, what it meant to be a true sinner, one to miss the mark, and one to completely go against the Lord. And it absolutely terrified him. Debased him, humiliated him. And from this moment on, Saul would never be the same. And we don't see that true conversion with Saul until a few verses over, three days later after he had fasted and and hadn't drank anything. Then someone is sent to him to share with him. And the scales fell off his eyes. And so here in this text, we're left with a man that is blind. A man that is hurting. A man that understands who he truly is outside of the grace of God. A man that is truly burdened and doesn't know what to do to fix it. The good news is that the Lord knows what to do to fix it. And so he sends Ananias later to go do just that. The bad news is those that are in this position, it's a pretty terrible spot to be in. To understand that you're a sinner and to carry the weight of that guilt and that shame. But remember the good news is there's one that can carry it and there's one that's built to carry it and his name is Jesus. And so today if you're in that position and you know that you're a sinner, you have that burden, surrender to the Master. Surrender to Him. By faith, believe in Jesus Christ. And He will save you. By faith, believe. Surrender to His will. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we know and we see in your word 